Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, a literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking about one of the most fundamental issues in the public conversation, how we argue, how we disagree, and what we can say in public. I'm joined by two guests. One is Andrew Doyle, better known as the alter ego of Titania McGrath, the intersectional poet, whose new book is called Free Speech and Why It Matters. The other is Ian Leslie, whose new book is Conflicted, why arguments are tearing us apart and how they can bring us together. Welcome both. Hello. Hi, Sam. Hi, both. Andrew, if I can start with you. Your book is a very sort of elegant and careful restatement of the case for free speech. And in it, you say that one of the things that's happened recently is that free speech, which used to be a thing that was championed by the left has now become an issue whose whose guardians tend to be on the right. Why do you think that's happened? Why has that changed? Well, that's something I would be delighted to know. I can only speculate why that has happened. I mean, I, I make that point because I want it to be clear that I don't think free speech is a partisan issue. You know, when I was a kid, it was the uh, right-wing tabloids that were pushing for censorship all the time. They wanted David Cronenberg's film Crash banned, for instance. I remember that one quite quite vividly. And then today, the more censorious publications are things like The Guardian and The, the New Statesman, the sort of the ones who identify as left, even though they're, they're not really. But, you know, those sorts of people who are pushing for, for that. And I, I think the reason I pointed that out, as I say, is that I do think this isn't a partisan issue. Why it might have gone that way is, I think, because of the rise of identity politics and specifically this kind of social justice ideology, this postmodern ideology that ultimately, at its heart, mistrusts language. It sees language as all powerful. It, It believes that our understanding of reality is entirely constructed through language. And if you take that logic to to its conclusion, what that means is that words, I mean, you hear it all the time, you hear activists saying that words normalise violence, words are violence, or this joke will normalise hatred towards this group or whatever. It's this blind faith in this idea that language is the the key factor when it comes to reality. And of course, although language is important, uh, and and no one is denying that, that is a a position that is not rooted in, in truth. So I think that's partly, I think it's because the left has become overrun with this new identitarian ideology. And as a result, it no longer trusts language and certainly doesn't trust people. So I, I think that would be my my supposition as to why that change has happened. The idea of the right and conservatives pushing for censorship makes sense to me because, you know, there's always been a thing on the right about a disapproval of artists who go too far or cause offence or are crude or, you know, that makes sense if you're quite a, an old-fashioned person and you don't like offensive language or violence in films and stuff. You know, that, that makes sense. The censorship that's coming from the left now is to do with this idea of power structures and, and the, the capacity for language to generate hate in society. As I say, it's, it's, it's not based on anything other than this kind of religious view. It's a religious view. I mean, one of the things that would surprise people, and I think has surprised people, who are used to the quite abrasive presence that you have on social media, you know, where particularly as Titania, you know, you're pricking pomposity, you're attacking, you know, these identitarian kind of orthodoxies in quite an aggressive way. This book's much more scholarly and much more sort of calm and inclusive and measured and reaching out to persuade. Was that a very conscious 
decision on your part to, to take a different tone. Well, that's just because that's how I am. You know, I'm writing in my own voice. The Titania character is just that, a character, and she's very, very aggressive. And she's nothing like me. I'm not a combative person. I'm not a confrontational person. I, I shy away from it as much as possible. I instinctively dislike being in confrontational situations. So I'm not someone who, who goes out of my way to have a scrap. Titania does. I mean, that's one of the features of the problem that I perceive with the social justice movement is it is very much devoid of human empathy and compassion and, and seeks to bully and attack and is very, very vicious. And that's just not in my nature. I'm not the sort of person... It would never occur to me to throw abuse at a stranger online. <laughs> you know, I mean, I get that every day, but it would never occur to me to do it. And I don't think it would occur to most people. I think most people are, are decent people. The tone of the book is... I don't think there's any point in taking a combative tone when it comes to something like free speech. I mean, I wanted in the book to take seriously the concerns of free speech sceptics, because for one thing, no one ever changed their mind by being shouted at <laughs> or insulted. I want to be able to persuade people, but I also do want to take them seriously because I think they have a point. You know, it's not nice to live in a society where people are saying hateful, evil, racist things. That isn't pleasant. It is, unfortunately, one of the prices we pay for freedom and liberty. But, you know, it's a difficult argument. And I think to be dogmatic about it and not to not to talk about both sides is wrong. And I think that's, you know, I know that with Ian's book, Ian talks about this idea of conflict being a necessary part of life. And it's, and I do believe that. And I think it is, it is important. But I think going in there, wading in with ad hominem attacks and insults and, and saying, you people have got it wrong and you're all idiots and, and you should all shut up. And that's not going to get anywhere. And, and so, yes, you're right. I've written the book. Yes, I suppose it is deliberate that I've written it in that tone, but that tone is my natural tone. So I'm quite happy to do that. Good time to bring Ian in, actually, because, you know, I think where your books both bear on the issues of public debate is this nexus of the fighting that goes on online, that ad hominem stuff, that throwing that that's beefed up by the algorithms. Ian, you say there's a way to change that or that we can disagree and we should disagree, because a lot of the you know conversation about the conversation tends to go, look, there's too much disagreement online there's too much fighting we need to find a way to get along yeah and I, I didn't want to write a book which which said hey why can't we all just get along why can't we put our differences aside and put conflict aside and, and just find out what we agree on because I think that's just another way of avoiding something that's incredibly important to human life and human discourse which is disagreement right disagreement and conflict and argument are how we make ourselves smarter. It's how we get to insight and new ideas. And it's also a way of learning about each other. So that's why I say I talk about arguments bringing us together. When you're in an argument with it, you're actually learning, if you're paying attention, by the way, about the other side. You're learning about how they think and, and how they feel. And you're also learning about yourself, again, if it's done right. But the, the problem is, we just do it really badly a lot of the time. We're in this world which is far more kind of egalitarian and diverse when it comes to people expressing their point of view, right? Everybody has the right to speak now. Everybody's expected to, to speak their mind, which is great. But we're not equipped culturally or, or neurologically for this world in which there's a huge amount of disagreement about. And a lot of it is happening in this incredibly fast public way on social media. So... We are getting into toxic fights, you know, on Twitter or whatever, 
Although actually, I don't think that's the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that we see some of those toxic fights and we just think, oh, this whole idea that I want to get into an argument or, you know, about an issue is just awful. Most of us are fairly conflict diverse, like Andrew and indeed me. And we think, well, I don't want to have the disagreement. I want to have the, the, the open confrontation with, with somebody. And we avoid it altogether. The reason I want the book is that I, I think disagreeing well is a skill, you know, done right. It has all these marvellous benefits, but because most of us are never taught it and, and we're not expected to, to learn it, we tend to avoid it because it's hostile and stressful. And I think you can avoid it either by just not getting into it at all, or you can avoid it by being incredibly moralistic and kind of slamming down on the other person and not giving them an inch. That's just another way of avoiding disagreement. And that's the kind I think that Andrew's reacting to. Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask about that because I'd read somewhere, I can't for the life of me remember where, that the vast majority, and there was a statistic posted, that a vast majority of people, when someone disagrees with them, they take it as a personal slight and they feel actual hurt. And even if it's a matter of politics or something like that, I mean, you might know more about those studies, but what can we do about that? I think that's something that I, I think we need to get over. We need to be able to understand that people are going to disagree. And that's a good thing, you know, partly because, you know, we could be wrong at any given time. But also it opens us up to, to further dialogue, further discussion. It helps us to understand other people. And is that something we can address in education? I think we should address it any way we can. But yeah, basically, you're right that there are two levels, simplifying hugely, but the, in the communication science and psychology, they talk about two levels in the conversation. There's the, the content level, which is the thing that we are talking about, right? The, the issue that we're apparently disagreeing about. And there's the relationship level, which is an unspoken, unverbalized level, which is about what you think about me and what I think about you. How, how we, you know, how are we relating to each other? And when you just concentrate on that, on that content, on that verbal level, and you're not really, you haven't really settled that relationship level, the disagreement just goes off the rails very quickly. And we have this, as you say, this instinctive feeling that when somebody disagrees with us at the content level, they're actually trying to attack us at a relationship level. And finding a way to, to separate the position that somebody's taken from their feelings about me is hard, right? It's something that we, we all have to try a little bit harder to do. But sometimes you have to put the work into that. Sometimes you have to find a way of showing that, you know, I do actually like and respect you. I just disagree about this thing hmm. that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's about the strategy, isn't it? You know, and it's it's sometimes acknowledging where someone might could be right or that kind of thing. There's a, But something I note with, with social media in particular is that a lot of the arguments are derailed because it becomes about ego. It becomes about performance. There's a consciousness that the argument is taking place in front of an infinite potential numbers of spectators who are all invisible. They're all watching. So really, you are arguing to win and to elevate your status. And whenever I detect this ego creeping into a dispute online, either from myself or from my detractor, I will back out very, very quickly because I just don't think it's helpful. What Ian's book suggests here, which, I mean, there's this catchphrase which your character, Andrew, inverts, you know, that facts don't care about your feelings. The sort of rationalist thing that, you know, conversely, feelings don't care about your facts. That This sort of articulates something actually slightly more profound that, you know, in Ian's terms, if I understand his book rightly, you need to pay attention to both if the conversation's going to work. Yeah, exactly right. I think that that phrase, facts don't care about your feelings, and that general idea that you sometimes get from 
people who like to style themselves as rationalists, that you can just you should just remove the emotion from the disagreement and everything can be kind of super rational. We can have these kind of Socratic dialogues. I just think it avoids the, the issue here, which is that we're human beings. We don't that's not how we behave. And also emotions actually help you clarify your thinking you know emotion is part of how we think it's not this thing that this messy stuff that just sort of gets in the way so i think you have to be and you should be attentive to the feelings that that are being created by by the conversation and you have to be attentive to the relationship that's going on and i think as Andrew said, I think we should give some, some credit to the, the, the critique of free speech when they say, OK, but there's a relationship and they focus on the power aspect of the relationship. Either that's, that's one thing, but they are right to, to say this is not just about ideas, it's about relationships too. And I think you have to attend to both levels, yeah. I mean, even just from the position of self-interest, it's always better to argue with civility. And to argue with civility is to take on board the emotional needs of the other person. And that's why I feel, I mean, this is, I know, a slightly different topic, but I've come to the conclusion that when it comes to arguing about these very important and often sensitive issues, we have to make a decision about who we argue with. I've come to the conclusion that it is absolutely useless me arguing with a zealot, someone who is going to come in screaming that I'm a Nazi because I support free speech, just throwing insults. That isn't someone I can have a productive dialogue with. So I will just ignore that person. In fact, on social media, if they're throwing insults, I'll just block that person because, of course, part of free speech is the right not to listen. And I think it's very important to choose who to have. And effectively, I don't think an argument can take place unless everyone is up for the rules of argumentation, is everyone is going to be civil and is going to listen to the other person and faithfully represent what they think rather than simply squabble with a straw man. 99% of the arguments I see on Twitter are people arguing with figments of their own imagination, just the ideas that they've decided. And I think there's that, that technique, I can't remember what it's called, but it's very effective where as part of the argument, the other person says to you, okay, if I've got this right, this is what you believe and then outlines your case. And that's a very sort of effective tool. So, Ian, you say somewhere in your book that, yeah. It's, called, it's sometimes called reflection. But, yeah, you, you characterise your opponent's view. You say, I say, if I'm understanding you correctly, this is yes. your position. It's a really good test, for, both for yourself and for them. And then they can correct you if, if there's misunderstanding. Exactly. But this cannot occur if, as most of the arguments I get into on Twitter, it cannot occur if the person is saying, I know that you secretly support free speech because you hate gay people. I know that you secretly like you secretly think this. I know that you are secretly funded by foreign powers who send you dark money. As I've said before, you know, it's so dark, I've never actually seen any of it. But they just know this stuff. And because they're part of this sort of pseudo-religious movement and are so convinced of their own telepathic ability to, to intuit the motive of others, they are incapable of argumentation. I would go that far. I think when you have someone who is absolutely incapable, it takes someone who can de-radicalise them. It takes someone like Daryl Davis, the musician who talks down members of the KKK. He has de-radicalised members of the KKK. He's got a cupboard full of white hoods to prove it. I couldn't do that. I do not have the skill or the patience to do that. He can do that. And I think the same goes for these social justice ideologues who have already decided that you are this evil monster who has all these beliefs with no evidence. They've just decided it. The argument is stymied before it's begun, in my view. Maybe you disagree with that. I wonder where the question of, because Adric, you're a comedian by trade, comedy and satire comes in, because of course, you know, we can say very honestly, you know, in a conversation, you need to have respectful dialogue and civility. And, but of course, satire kind of cuts across that very often because it can be abrasive, it can yep. be disrespectful, it often needs to be. And it almost always works 
on exactly what we've been saying we need to avoid, which is, you know, stereotyping, straw manning, creating a kind of archetypal opponent and mocking that. How does yeah, that well, fit into this ecosystem? Well, that, this is what gets me into trouble, of course, because I have two jobs. And satire and comedy, these are art forms. And satire cannot exist without caricaturing your opponent and exaggerating. I mean, you know, give me a single satirist who's ever not used those tools. But satire and comedy is not the same thing as civil discourse. I don't want a comedian to be civil. I want them to be abrasive and offensive. I want to be, because it's not the same thing as a serious argument. This is also why I don't like politicians to be funny. This is also why I don't like Donald Trump making me laugh all the time because I, I don't want the president to make me laugh. So I think there is a, by the way, I'm not suggesting that politicians can't be funny. I'm, you know, I'm not that dogmatic, but I'm just saying that I think we have to be able to separate the creative arts and the idea of political discourse. It's, it's a completely different thing. We can't expect comedians to be nice. They're, for a start, they're inhabiting a persona, which is not themselves. You know, when I do stand up, that's not me on stage. That's a, a theatrical version of me that is actually very different to me. My, my on-stage character is quite waspish and certainly irrational and would say things that I would never say. That's part of it. But there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what comedy and satire is, is that people think that they're just listening to someone say what they think on stage. Well, some comics do that, I suppose. The vast majority don't because jokes can't work that way. And often I will espouse a view that I do not agree with in my on-stage comedic persona because that's interesting comedically and theatrically. But you wouldn't do that in a debate because you're not interested in the theatricality, are you? You're interested in, uh, in getting to the truth. Ian, do you think you can separate satire and mockery and laughter that forensically and absolutely from, if you like, a wider general political discourse? No, no, no. I think laughter and humour are very important parts of good disagreement. They're a, a reminder and almost a physical reminder that we have more in common than the thing that we are disagreeing about. You know, if you're in a tense disagreement and somebody makes a joke and everybody in the room laughs, then there's a kind of emotional payoff to that, which is, yeah, we, we, all, we all responded in the same way. And so therefore, that actually makes it easier to get into the disagreement properly without either tearing each other apart or, or, or leaving the room. I just want to go back to this question of civility because I have a sort of mixed feelings about it. There is a critique of civility that I think is reasonable, which is that when it becomes just this kind of an adherence to an elaborate set of rules of discourse that you either sign up to or you're excluded from the discourse, then that is a problem because it means that voices that are you know, maybe somebody hasn't learned those rules. Does that mean that they don't get to have a voice in, in this conversation? Maybe somebody's feeling incredibly strongly and emotionally about this and they forget about the rules for a moment. Does that mean we shouldn't hear their voice? And I think there's, you know, there's something in that. I think where the people who criticise civility go too far is to dismiss the whole idea because, as, as, as Andrew said, you know, civility is a way of creating space for the disagreement. It's actually... A, a way to kind of stop people tyrannising the, the conversation and allow, allowing more voices in. And I think that the, the kind of current obsession with terminology that you get from some of the kind of people who are really interested in, in politically correct, whatever you call it, terminology, you know, whether we're talking about people of colour or, or coloured people, you know, how important that distinction is. If you think that's a really important distinction, then OK, you're, but you're creating a rule which, which a lot of people are not going to 
to adhere to, either because they, they don't know about it or, or they don't think it's important. And I think that kind of elaborate structure of rules, that, that code that you either know or, or you don't know, is not helpful. And in some ways, it reminds me of kind of the old fashioned codes of class that, that we have in this country, where, you know, unless you understand the codes of, of discourse and you know how to avoid slighting somebody in, in, in the way you speak, then really, you know, you can leave the house. Well, I, I think it comes down to this idea of education, because actually the codes that are embedded into centuries old disciplines are very useful and egalitarian, in fact, for the same reason. That's why we have a shared grammar and a shared syntax, because if everyone is taught that it's anti elitist, it means absolutely everyone can be involved in the conversation. Similarly, if you learn about the tradition of Socratic dialogue and the, the tradition of argumentation, it means you can effectively participate in the debate. I'm not suggesting that anyone should be excluded from the debate. But the truth is that if you wade into a debate screaming, you're an ugly, Nazi, evil, bigot, whatever, that person is not obliged to listen to you and nine times out of ten they won't. So I think it is a, a good idea to teach young people about the, the rules of argumentation because these are not just things that have been arbitrarily decided upon. These are things that have been developed much like the canon of English literature or any other canon over many, many centuries and they work. They've come from the greatest minds in civilization. So I think the, the, it is actually an anti-elitist position and an egalitarian position to encourage people to argue civilly and, and by the quote-unquote rules. I mean, I, I'm not as bothered about the rules as you are. Maybe there are just one or two very simple rules, like don't be a dick, right? And if you follow that, you know, well, I will it, engage with it. you. But that's it. I'm not talking about that. I think rules is the wrong word because I think that's too stringent. Yeah. I think it's things like just learning the basic facets of critical thinking, which is that if you engage in ad hominem attacks, to quoque, if you just mischaracterise, so if you intuit motive... You're already introducing these Latin terms, which makes me kind of... I don't well, think no, people well, have well, to well, learn well, these, you know... No, they don't. But, but the principle, I'm not talking about that. You know, you, d you don't need to know the terminology for sentence structure to know how to structure a sentence. You don't need to know what ad hominem means. You just need to know not to behave like a, a dick, as you put it. Right. So <laughs> it's about the principles. I'm not talking. I mean, I'm using those terms now because we're having a conversation about it from a theoretical perspective. I'm but when it comes to applying those principles, you're just trying to impress Sam. I get it. I'm impressed. <laughs> I like a good two coke. Sam is easily impressed. It's not, but it's not a problem. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm suggesting that the principles actually are important, whatever we want to call them, and actually we do people a disservice by encouraging them to to actually remove themselves from the potential for conversation by not adhering to them. But isn't there an issue here, which is particularly noticeable in the social media conversation, that in terms of Ian's content versus relationship thing? that the algorithms of social media reward a particular sort of engagement, and it's the sort that's angry. You know, outrage travels, anger travels, that, you know, we've got a sort of set of motivated, profit-making algorithms that have an interest in distorting or worsening the conversation and people's ability to disagree. And I'm wondering how you both think that's fixable without, say, censorship or whatever. I mean, it seems to me, for instance, Andrew, you make a very lucid and elegant case in favour of free speech based essentially on the Enlightenment principles that, you know, Areopagita go forward. Yeah. And yet I'm wondering how applicable directly that is to the digital age when we've got something different going on under the bonnet. Well, this is why I would probably suggest that people just get off social media. I don't think social media is the right forum for meaningful and constructive discussion. I, I think it can happen. 
but I think it's rare because of all the things that we've we've outlined and principally because of the reason I, I mentioned earlier that I don't think it's to do with getting to the truth. It's it's to do with performativity. And I will probably get off Twitter relatively soon because I don't believe in it as a forum for, for serious discussion. I don't think that we can really get anywhere with it. And I, I think it's about choosing your battles, but also choosing when to have them and, and who to have them with. Ian, do you think you can have a Socratic dialogue in social media? Or do we have to learn to? <laughs> no, you can't have these kind of like, well, you can't, but it's hard to have these kind of long, in-depth conversations. They do happen, but it's, it's when you're dealing with, you know, you have to fit in your thought into, you know, a small box, which is a good discipline in lots of ways. But A, that's, it's quite hard to kind of have a, a nuanced discussion on those terms. B, because the rest of the relationship is, is not there, you're just seeing a few words, right? All those kind of ancient instincts of, of defensiveness are triggered when, when somebody disagrees with you. You don't have the kind of wide bandwidth nature of a, a face-to-face encounter where, you, you know, your relationship with the person is about much more than just the thing that you happen to be talking about. You don't have that. You've just got this thing on which you're disagreeing. And that little thing stands in for the whole person that is why it becomes this kind of dry thin little hostile disagreement quite quickly or it can however I, I'm, less, agree, yeah. I'm less kind of negative i mean i still learn a lot from people on twitter and used right you can use it as a source of kind of low stakes light touch disagreements you know with people who you do have some relationship with or you know or at least engage with you in the right way but yeah i agree if if, if somebody is just being hostile and sarcastic all the time there's absolutely no point in in carrying on i think you're right though that there can be benefits i have had situations ian where people have corrected me for instance so say i've published an article and i've made a factual error and i've had people correct me through because of social media and that and i welcome that i think that's a really positive side or when you know people are coming at you disagreeing but from a position of civility i will engage and i often learn a lot and i often realize where i'm wrong and that is I think that's wonderful. So there is that element. But when you're using social media, particularly when you get to a certain number of followers, you have to know who to block. You have to you have to use the block function because it just doesn't work otherwise. Otherwise, it's just a cesspit of abuse. It's just a playground which you do well to get out of. So, you know, it's it's a tricky one. I, I mean, I don't, I don't think we should spend too long on social media because it's a small part of, of most people's lives. Yeah. And a lot of, lots of people aren't on it. I think there's a wider, much wider problem, which is we're just becoming uncomfortable. Well, I think we've always been uncomfortable with disagreement. We never really give much thought on how to do it well. And I think, you know, the thing that, that, that you're concerned about, Andrew, is is this sense that there's a kind of correct way to, to think about things. And unless you, you're either on board with that or you're not, right, it's becoming quite a kind of binary debate across yeah, not, many issues. Not, not a correct way to think. I think, in a sense, the opposite. I think people should be able to think in multiple ways about things. But, but I think that just in terms of self-interest, as I say, in terms of advancing the debate, in terms of basically having a discussion, just as two people cannot have a discussion if they speak different languages, that it just cannot happen. Similarly, two people cannot have a productive discussion if one of them is only interested in throwing insults and pretending they know what the other person thinks. That's all I mean by that. I think we've got sort of distracted by maybe my misuse of the word rules. I'm talking on very practical level here. And I also think you're right about the distorting effect of social media. I think it's only 20% of the country are on Twitter. It isn't most people. And the ones that are, are not representing themselves well. You know, I, I, I was trolled mercilessly by an academic who uh, 
basically behaved like a child. I mean, it was absolutely insane. And this was a sort of leading academic. And then I heard him on Radio 4 talk to Melvin Bragg and he sounded really polite and sweet and the sort of person I would really get on with. But on Twitter, it was like he was this child. And it's it's like um, Helen Pluckrow said to me the other day, she was saying that it, it is a real worry when the person yelling at you on Twitter, you can't decide if they're a 12 year old who should have their Twitter account taken away or a professor of sociology. And I think that gets to the heart of it that, that you know, People don't represent themselves well on Twitter. It rewards, as you say, Sam, the algorithms reward bad behaviour. And I think, given that most people aren't on it, maybe Ian's right, we do overemphasise its significance. This point that you were making about different cultures, I mean, Ian, you've got what seems to me a very penetrating point, quite surprising thing in your book that says that we sort of... Conversations don't take place very effectively when people are talking at cross-purposes. and You use the... Koresh, Wacko siege, and, you know, it's a sort of rather radical example of it. But you say, for instance, that, I think this is in Jonathan Haidt's book, that liberals and conservatives in the States are arguing from such different worldviews that they're more or less incompatible. In fact, what you also say is that it turns out that conservatives understand liberals better than liberals understand conservatives. Yeah, liberals or, you know, vaguely kind of like left-wing liberal people have this almost a double problem here. It's always hard to see the other person's point of view and, and to see the world, that, that, right? So that, that's always a problem for us anyway. The problem that we, because I kind of count myself as one of them, we liberals have is we have this kind of extra level of certainty that our way of seeing the world is the correct one. It's almost kind of like a meta level where we go, yeah, but actually, because I'm fact-based and science-based and analytical in my thinking, and you are just irrational, there's really almost no point in me engaging with your different worldview because you just haven't thought this through. That attitude means that we're actually less good. That's why they you know, hate sites, these studies, finding it. People like me are actually less good at understanding the other side than, than, than the other side is at understanding us. And a lot of our big kind of political ructions in the last few years in the UK and the US have come from that, that kind of clash where you get one side just kind of assuming that they are the analytical, rational, fact-based ones and the other one saying, effectively, screw you. <laughs> you know, you haven't thought about how I feel. You haven't understood things from my point of view. And again, that relationship level is, is, is settled and it kind of knocks the content conversation to pieces. I think in addition to that, there's the element of moral judgment is really challenging this debate. I've always been very frustrated with the tendency of those on the left to assume that people of a right-wing disposition are evil, not just wrong, but evil. And that is not something that is generally it doesn't really apply the other way around. I think most right-wing people almost see left-wing people as, as just a bit stupid or naive, but they don't tend to ascribe a moral judgment. I mean, sometimes they do. This is a generalisation, but but I think, broadly speaking, broadly I have speaking, seen I agree. this. And yeah. I, yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think that is something that we need to get over because the sad, boring truth is that most people are pretty nice. Oh, and they so, just, they so, just... so many disagreements, so much of the discourse from the left is effectively people saying, yeah, you, you are a bad person, therefore... I'm not going to listen to your point of view. Yeah. And it's combined with also what I've been talking about, which is you're a stupid person because you don't, you know, <laughs> you don't see the world in the same kind of analytical way as I do, which is actually quite an odd, odd way to see the world. So, yeah, no, I agree that the introduction of moralisation, moralising kind of argument, it's almost a kind of way to shut down the argument and say, OK, 
well, this is just immoral, this is beyond the pale, Let's, we're not going to have this disagreement at all. It's also weirdly narcissistic, you know, this idea that if someone thinks differently about the world than I do, they must be evil or stupid. That's the only explanation. It couldn't possibly be that I might be wrong. I mean, it, it is the definition of textbook narcissism. And I, I think that coming back again, this is connected to, to the civility thing, because I, my, my feeling is actually I, I cannot be sure that I am right about a lot of these things. I can be sure about whether or not I'm being a dick. So let, let me, like, at least get that bit right. And then whether I, I'm right or wrong on, on the issue, I can't actually control. You know, I might feel pretty confident in my point of view, but I'm really kind of 100% confident. But I, I, at least I can be 100% confident that I'm not being, you know, nasty to, to somebody or I'm, I'm not kind of tearing them apart. The problem with that, though, is that a lot of the people who do engage in this bullying behaviour, and a lot, I see an awful lot from the identitarian left, they don't see it as nasty because they've demonised the other person and dehumanised the other person. They see them as less than human. They see them as subhuman. So they have no obligation to treat them with courtesy or respect. And so therefore they can say, I wish you die. I hope you die in a grease fire, as one activist said recently. And they think they're doing God's work. They think they're on the side of the angels. That's what's scary about it. This idea of shutting down the conversation, can I just briefly, to take us back to a sort of fundamental topic of your book, Andrew, is this idea of you know, censorship. And I think most of us, you know, we're against state censorship. It's very mm -hmm. easy to be against state censorship. But a kind of crux, which is where this argument has moved on to, is people have said, look, the public sphere effectively has been privatised. You know, if you're kicked off Twitter or if people are, you know, absolutely dogpiling you because you said something you don't like, be this on social media or in a, I don't know, in Facebook or anything, you know, this is where the public conversation goes on. You're not being censored. There are private companies doing what they like. Yeah. Do you hold with that view? I mean, you don't seem to in your book. I'm wondering what you think, Ian. I mean, what now counts as censorship, if you like? I do think that the definition of censorship as, as just being state censorship is too narrow. You know, when you've got very powerful institutions or, or, or media platforms that are kind of volunteering to to ban certain points of view from them, you know, without the intervention of the state, that's a problem, right? And and there are very, very few things that I, that I would ban from, from the public arena. A question I have really is, just looking back in history, and I'm really kind of open to, to examples here, but are there incidents in a period of history where we would go back retrospectively now and say things would have been much better if we'd banned speech around that issue. Yeah, that's an interesting case, isn't it? Because the one that is often proposed is that had uh, in Weimar Germany, they had banned the Nazis from speaking and, and that kind of thing, that then we wouldn't have ended up in the catastrophe that we did. And of course, the reverse is true. This is a point I make in my book about how there were hate speech laws in Weimar Germany and they were used routinely against the Nazi party and Judith Stryker for Disturma. Joseph Goebbels was arrested. And every time it happened, this was turned into a PR exercise for the Nazi party and this amplified their message. This is the problem. Hate speech laws have never worked. And I think you're right to, to raise that question is that there, there aren't scenarios really, because as we all know, try attempting to uh, suppress speech draws more attention to it. I mean, it's called the Streisand effect. So it, there is a historical record that we can look through. And to come back to what you've been saying about the, the modern age, we are in a very unprecedented age where we have got a handful of, of Silicon Valley tech giants who have more collective power than any nation state 
but none of the democratic accountability. So this is a unique thing. It shouldn't be controversial to say that when there is a, an oligopoly on, on certain elements of the private sector, there should be some kind of regulation. I mean, this is why antitrust laws exist. It's not a controversial idea. And the idea that censorship is only enacted by the state, well, that's out of date. That's, a, that's an argument that's way out of date because as, as, as Ian has just pointed out, uh, it's perfectly possible. And indeed it happens that Twitter, Facebook and YouTube censor and ban people for having certain opinions. We're not talking about incitement to violence or harassment or that kind of thing or illegal activity. We're talking about people who have opinions such as gender critical feminists who routinely have their accounts deleted because a few kids in Silicon Valley don't agree. And that is that is a major problem. And there, there's going to have to be a discussion about it. And the mantra of they are private companies, they can do what they want, as I say, is just out of date. It no longer applies. This is the de facto public square. And we need to be able to address the problems of the digital age. It's tricky, though, and not just in technology, but, but you know, think about the government's recently announced policy on, on free speech, where they say, we're going to have this free speech champion, this free free speech. They didn't call it free speech czar because that the irony might have been almost too, too painful. To, <laughs> but the idea that the government appointed <laughs> official is going to go around to university saying, you're not speaking, speak more freely, say something. I mean, that just seems bizarre. It does. And the, the problem is people are self-censoring themselves. You know, the problem is more kind of a, a lot of conformist, you know, not very deep thinking going on on, on those campuses. Yeah. It's not ideal to be in a situation where you want free speech to be enforced by state intervention. You know, it does, it does feel contradictory and funny. You know, what you really want is an attitudinal change. You want a cultural change. And as you, you're very right, Ian, to particularly focus on self-censorship as being an incredible threat. And, and again, the data is in on this, the statistics. are in it. It's very difficult when it comes to things like no platforming, because most no platforming is preemptive anyway. We cannot possibly assess the scale of this because the kind of people who have controversial views would never be invited in the first place because they would violate the legislation that's already in place. But when it comes to self-censorship, we have research and it's quite thorough and it's quite rigorous and we know the truth. The truth is that there are a substantial number of academics and students who do not express their views openly and honestly for fear of reprisals and the destruction of their reputation and their livelihood. That is just demonstrably the case. The facts tell us this. So we are living in a culture of conformity, which has a particular impact on higher education. The very place where we should have more free and open and honest exchange of views. And the very simplistic response to this from, I have to say again, people from the identitarian left is there is no free speech crisis. There is no problem on campus. It's just this weird denialism, just completely ignoring what the facts so plainly tell us. And again, it's because their views aren't the ones that are deemed unpopular. And what they will say very lazily is, oh, well, what is it these people want to say? Do they just want to slug off gay people or have a go? And it's like, no, these are good people who do not have a discriminatory bone in their body. They are simply wanting to express views uh, that are perceived to be unpopular. You'll remember straight after the Brexit vote, there was a weird, insane kind of hysteria where people, most people who voted to leave kept it to themselves. That should never be the case. We should not We should be able to have a sensible, open discussion about whether or not we leave a neoliberal trading block. This shouldn't be something that stigmatises you as a monster. It doesn't make any sense. But that is the case, unfortunately, in higher education. And it is being egged on and exacerbated by leading academics. I often think academics are the problem more than students, to be honest, because it's only a, a handful of students that have a problem with this. This is the case for free speech instrumental i'm interested in this idea of the marketplace of ideas i mean you talked very effectively about how you know censoring the nazis didn't work because you know hate speech that's censored you know becomes more attractive and interesting i mean is it an article of faith or is it a demonstrable truth that 
in the long run, good ideas drive out bad ones if they're both allowed to be aired. I mean, Ian's book suggests it might be more complicated than that because so much emotion and identity is, you know, rather than just logic is involved. Yeah, I think, it, you know, it is more complicated than that. What you can say is looking at history and what, from what we learn about history, censorship almost never works. I mean, that is, that is something we can, we can say because we have a historical record to draw from. That is not to suggest that good ideas always win out. I don't think they do. And that's why, that's why I think you have to continually make the case for things like free speech. There's no guarantee that the case for free speech will win out. But I think making the case is a good thing to do. But I think Ian's right about that. I, I think, I think the, the critique of the marketplace of ideas, which I agree with, is that it's not, it's not a level playing field, right? Some people have more market power and monopolistic power in the public sphere than others. And so this isn't really a kind of perfect Hayekian kind of free market. That you, you're just ignoring the structures of power that are going on here. Okay, th that's a fair point. But the answer to this, I think, is almost always not, therefore, we need to remove certain points of view and ideas from the public sphere. It's we need to introduce more. We need to highlight more. We need to create more. You know, the principle of diversity, which the left has been so good at advocating in terms of racial and, and cultural and, and gender diversity, has to apply to ideas and points of view and does. You know, the more diverse your disagreement and, and, and your debate in terms of the points of view and experiences that are brought to the table, the healthier, better it's going to be. So I just, on principle, I just don't like the idea that the way to deal with, with problems in the marketplace of ideas is to shut some ideas out. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, ultimately it comes down to this idea of the best way to resolve disputes is more more speech, not less speech. And also, when they do invoke these ideas of structural disadvantages, the problem with that is that is often a subjective point of view. I mean, most people who are part of the identitarian intersectional social justice left will tell you that they are the underdogs. They don't have the power in society. But actually, the reverse is true. They are the establishment. They are the ones who are, have key movers and shakers in all of our major cultural and political and educational institutions. So if you've got someone who has the power claiming they have none and therefore they should have the right to silence their opponents. It's all backwards, you know? So absolutely, I think more speech, not less. That's, that's got to be the answer. And if you want to persuade those identitarian zealots, I mean, Ian's book, you know, a large part of it is about how you deal with people who are aggressive, delusional, enraged. What are the ways, if, if you're going to get them to agree with you. If you're going to try and talk identitarian zealots out of this idea that, that free speech is a threat, how are you going to go about doing it? I think that's one for Ian, isn't it? Yeah. I don't think that you always can, right? As Andrew, Andrew's going to furiously agree with me. There's some, at some point you have to walk away. But what I would say is that we tend to overestimate the extent to which somebody is is beyond the pale right often you'll find that that person who you think is not worth talking to because they're just rude or, or hostile or ideologically rigid can actually be moved to a better more sort of fluid place where they're actually able to get into the disagreement and listen to you a little bit but you have to kind of I talk about in the book I talk about you have to create the opponent you want you have to create the adversary you want that that might mean kind of modeling good discourse and hoping that they follow 
Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. That might mean making them feel good about themselves. Maybe they're feeling insecure or threatened in some case. You need to reassure them about that, compliment them, whatever. Then you can get into the disagreement. Sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't. But, but you know, there are things that you can do in order to make this person who seems like they're, they're not going to have a productive disagreement move into the space of productive disagreement. doesn't always work, but often you'll find that the people you wrote off actually can come back into the conversation and play a useful part in it. I do agree with that. And I do think, I, I think I was very much specifically talking about Twitter there. Is <laughs> I don't see the point <laughs> if someone's bathing. But, you know, I bet most of the people who throw abuse my way on Twitter, if I met them in real life, they wouldn't be like that at all. And yeah. and and I think I the first step should be, okay, let's stop this conversation. Let's have it face to face. That That's a one good way. And the other good way, as you know, obviously Ian is writing about is, is you know, just listening to other people and, and accepting that disagreement and conflict isn't, isn't such a bad thing. One of the examples I think of when I went to Politico, which was the political conference in um, Los Angeles a couple of years ago, and I saw Ben Shapiro, who's a conservative commentator, give a talk. And at the end, he asked people to stand in a line if they wanted to ask questions in the centre aisle. But he specifically said, I would like to hear from those who disagree with me first. And so they went to the front of the queue. And in every case, no matter how hostile they were, he was polite, he was civil, he would say to them, thank you for disagreeing, thank you for this point. He wouldn't attempt to belittle them. There was even a woman who had a T-shirt on saying Ben Shapiro is overrated, like slagging him off on, the, on her T-shirt. And he was civil to her. And, and you could sense that people appreciated it, even people who ostensibly hate him. So there are strategies, and Ian's right to sort of outline these strategies, not just for the sake of this this broad principle of civility, which we, you know, it, it's actually more to do with your own self-interest, you know, as well. Like, because you get you get more out of a debate if you, if you allow people to speak and if you hear their view. Yeah, in the book, I, in the last chapter, I talk about this and I say, do you want to keep this person in the room or not? You know, a lot of the scenarios I'm looking at are, like, I talk to interrogators and hostage negotiators, right? So interrogators <laughs> are like, in this country, at least, the suspect can actually just leave the room if they want to, right? They're, they're not legally compelled to stay there. So the interrogator's job is to keep them in the room, right? Mm. And that means you can't let the conversation get hostile and, and confrontational to get the most out of it. And so you always have to ask yourself, you know, figuratively speaking, am I going to keep this person in the room? How can I keep them in the room? Because when they leave the room, that's the end of the disagreement. Well, having said that, I think, what you've said reminds me that I do think it takes some expertise sometimes. I, I mean, I, I would simply not have the patience or the tolerance to sit and talk to a white supremacist. I wouldn't. But I know that there are people who can, but I'm not going to do it myself. Yeah, I mean, you have to decide whether or not like you want to, mm. but you make it a conscious choice, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, people forget yeah. that and then they're surprised when it turns into a row and the person leaves. Can I just end by asking, which seems to be a thorny question, it's returned slightly to this business of, you know, private companies and institutions are de facto acting like state censors. How do you stop that, do you think? Can you regulate for free speech? And does that in itself constitute an attack, if you like, on, on basic liberties? As you said, freedom, freedom of speech includes the freedom not to listen. No other media outlet or publisher can get away with what Twitter and Facebook and YouTube get away with. The legal protections that they enjoy because they are deemed to be platforms, not publishers. You know, whenever Facebook is sued 
for libelous material or something that's appeared on its site, its defence is always the same. It uses Section 230 of the Decency Act, Communications Decency Act, and says, we are not publishers. We are not responsible for anything on our platform. Well, if that's the case, they need to stop behaving like publishers and curating the material that appears. So it's as simple as that. So it can be the case that if they're going to behave like publishers and if they're going to censor certain opinions, they just need to be deprived of the legal protections that no other media outlet is afforded. But hang on, hang on a second. What you're talking about there, if I understand you rightly, is that, you know, sometimes they publish things that are libelous or offensive and they get away with that because they have these platform protections rather than publisher protections. Yes. My question is not not how do we stop them publishing stuff, but how do we force them to be open to publishing more stuff? Well, I mean, that's a that's a big problem because I suppose part of the thing that you could do is you could legislate, you could amend the Communications Decency Act so that they would be able to delete content that is illegal, but not content that is merely offensive or that they don't agree with. It could be done that way. And then they could still enjoy the legal protections that they do. So that's one possible potential solution. But I think more than that, the solution is probably, I mean, going back to this idea of a free speech czar, you know, actually these these arguments aren't won through regulation generally. They're not won through force. They're won through winning the argument. And I think more than anything, the Silicon Valley tech giants and the people who populate them need to be persuaded that free speech is better than censorship. And at the moment, they don't think that. And that is going to be the big challenge, I think, over the next 15, 20 years is going to be just to reinstate this fundamental principle of a liberal democracy and the idea that free speech is not something to be feared. There is a perception at the moment that there is a kind of a zero-sum game where the more free speech we have, the less minority rights we have. In other words, that the two are in conflict. Actually, that is an illusory conflict. And the only way to guarantee equal rights for minorities is to defend free speech and uphold free speech. And so it's about winning the argument. It's about... But, but I don't know how or whether that is possible, but I think that would be preferable to a regulatory approach. Ian, do you you share that view? It's a very, very difficult problem. I don't know what the answer is. I think the media, the social media platforms are actually in a very, well, pretty much impossible position. Because on the the one hand, you've got people saying, oh, there's way too much hate, hate speech and material that needs to be censored on your platforms. That's your responsibility. Okay, but then it becomes their responsibility to decide what is hate speech and and what's not. I don't want them having that responsibility. You know, I don't think they are remotely equipped for it. And to their credit, that's effectively what what they've been saying. And if we make it their responsibility, we make them liable for it. What do you think is going to happen? You know, do you think they're going to forensically remove, you know, these kind of tiny bits of hate speech and... No, they're just going to lop huge kind of parts of the discourse off just because they want to reduce the risk of being sued. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. So I don't think we can leave it to them. I don't know how government regulates speech on the on these platforms. But the idea that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg should be in charge of deciding what's hate speech and what's not, I think that's ridiculous. I totally agree. And I don't trust a state to decide what hate speech is. No, no one's being able to decide what it is anyway. Everyone, everyone has different definitions. So it's hopeless. So yeah, absolutely, I agree. And I, I think you're right. If they were held liable for everything on their platform, they would just censor everything as a precaution, right? So you would get, be in, in a worse situation. Well, it's a conversation that will continue. And long may it on all the platforms available. Andrew Doyle, Ian Leslie, thanks very much indeed for your time.
Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.